I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die historic on the Fury Road. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where we will be watching Mad Max Fury Road one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are talking about Minute One, which begins with a 15-second span of logos, and it ends with each of us, in our own way, being broken. Joining us this week is Fury Road's own lead storybook artist. Let me say that again. Fury Road's own lead storyboard artist, Mark Sexton. Hello. I think I'd like to be a storybook artist, actually. That would be much more fun. (laughs) Have they done a children's storybook version of Fury Road yet? I feel like you could easily do that. I think they, I, I think they should. I'm up for the challenge. <laughs> uh, I've tried to get my six-year-old to watch it. She's watched the trailer. She likes it. It's colorful. She calls it the fire film. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We haven't got that far yet. I have to wait till mummy's out of the house for a couple of, hour, couple of hours before that happens. Yeah, that sounds about right. You certainly have plenty of pictures left over from your work with the movie, because as I mentioned, all of those storyboards, you had your hands pretty deep into that pie. Two years that I'll never get back. Sorry, I'm just checking my pulse. Yes, I'm still alive. (laughs) No, no, no. Actually, no, we had two years of story. Mark, uh, can I stop you real quick? Um, Can I have you rewind a little bit back to where you said you had two years because your connection kind of paused and then we had this long drawn out tone and it sounded really weird. That's okay. That's, that's Australian for, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, (laughs) I'm looking forward to someone doing an Australian accent again. Um, Oh, uh, come on, come on, come on. Do it, do it, do it. Anyway, later in the talk, just surprise me with it. Um, uh, Yeah. So two years storyboarding sitting in a room with George um, and two others, uh, Brendan McCarthy and Peter Powell, drawing many pictures on whiteboards, standing up, looking at each other's work, (laughs) trying to make each other's work look like one style of art. And it was interesting. But uh, yes, I'm sure George was very sick of us at the end of two years, but we are still alive, so he didn't have us killed. And that was early on in the process. November 1999 was when we started. So half a year, our listeners probably weren't even alive. (laughs) Um, I finished storyboarding it in November 2001. So very terrifying. And then little bits later on. Yeah. Some bits. But uh, yeah, it was a bit terrifying. Sat there for 13 years waiting for something else to happen. You could say that again, because everything I've read about the production of this movie was that it was just one seemingly insurmountable hurdle after another. Yes, definitely. It was the production that we sat there just going, oh my God, while we're sitting here waiting for something cool to happen, we're just going to do Penguin films. Um, (laughs) So I think, yeah, the Penguin films, insurmountable objects that we needed to get over. But no, no, uh, the film production three times. And uh, yeah, it kept on falling over. You know, Mm. wars, um, exchange rates, climactic stupidity, um, flowering deserts and uh, of course you know one director who was really 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 stuck on doing a film a particular way while everyone else is sitting there just going i don't know what he's trying to do well everyone else at the studio studios <laughs> sorry more than one studio 
um, trying to figure out what the hell he was talking about. Hmm. I'm glad you brought up more than one studio because here at the top of the minute, we start off by seeing the Warner Brothers logo drift in. And then after Warner Brothers, we get to see Village Roadshow pictures, which is the first time that we've actually seen the Village Roadshow Pictures logo show up at the beginning of one of these movies. They've always been in the background, but this is the first time we actually get to see, oh, hey, these people are really here. They really do things, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they're the quiet ones. They're the quiet ones in meetings. Thank goodness, somebody has to be quiet. (laughs) I wish I was. (laughs) Well, when you've got... Warner Brothers and their singing, dancing frog mascot. They've got a lot of money, so they've got a lot of big egos of themselves. They remind me of a certain character in this movie. You know, the one with the shiny nose. <laughs> I, I, actually, I do, I do got to say that the, the Warner Brothers guys we had on this film have been working with George for a number of years, and they were, they were actually really awesome. But then they all left. <laughs> <laughs> When you drag out a production that long, I can imagine there's more than a little turnover. Yeah, I think they were hanging on until this film got made. Just going, hurry up, George, make it so we can leave. And then they (laughs) made it and they all ran away screaming into other places. I was reading up about Warner Brothers stuff and I found an article from the magazine Variety from back in 2002 written by a guy named Claude Brodesser because I want to make sure everybody gets their due. But he says in the article that Miller got the rights to the Mad Max franchise back from Warner Brothers as part of a settlement with the studio in 1997. Basically, Warner gave him the rights to these movies so that he would step away from contact and just distance himself from that project. They said, listen, we want to bring in someone else here. Have this thing that you love. (laughs) That's a trade-off. Yes. Smartest move that George ever did. Um, Well, one of the smart moves. Yes, I think there was court cases and all sort of stuff. But yes, he was going to do contact and I think he spent about a year working on it. Storyboarding and writing with Carl Sagan and he was going to do a hard science version. So it was going to be all about the science and all about extraterrestrials and what they were going to be and not so much about the love story. And then Jodie Foster was cast and then it became about the love story. And I think there was a certain issue at that point that flowered and blossomed into a court case and then George got the rights back. Definitely a worthy trade-off. I've seen Contact and it's pretty good. It's not bad. I've seen Contact. It's a good movie. I would have liked to see George Miller's version. (laughs) Good. I've got to admit, I haven't seen it. I should probably stop whispering, shouldn't I? (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. George George can't hear me. (laughs) Yeah, as far as I know... He's not one of our listeners. Now, you mentioned time before in our conversations offline and even before we officially started this episode that he's aware of us, but I definitely haven't seen him popping up in any sort of our social media or anything like that. Yes. George is not one for social media, mainly because his wife won't let him because he'll get lost. Good woman. (laughs) Very, 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 very very involved in, oh, oh, this happens. So he's not on Facebook and he's not on Twitter and he's not on things for his own sanity and everybody else's. But yes, I did mention you guys to him a, a while back, a couple of months back, and looked a little puzzled. He did his, um, his slightly lost koala impression that he does with the hair out to the side and the slightly quizzical look on his face. And he looked around and he said, why, well, why, do, why do they do that? Minute by minute? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> oh. And then went on, went on his way. But yes, we did have a chat, particularly about Thunderdome after your... Um, 
your very excellent run through that film, which I thought was awesome and made me appreciate that film a whole bunch more than I did before. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I definitely share your sentiment. I didn't appreciate Thunderdome fully until we sat down and took a look at it. And I have become an ardent defender of that movie, warts and all. Oh, yeah, big time. Well, it's because there's all this stuff that we didn't really it was it's interesting i think we were so so tied up with this idea that it was going to be like road warrior and and it wasn't it was a very different beast and i think your first impressions is to go Ooh, it sucks a bit and i know when we were doing fury road we actually asked george at one point george if you had your way again would you do thunderdome a different way and he looked a bit nonplussed at that too his lost koala impression and went oh, um no <laughs> But I did ask him about um, all the uh, stuff that had been excised from the film and wondered whether whether they were still in the vaults at Kennedy Miller somewhere. And he said, oh, no, no, they're all in the, uh, the Australian Film Institute. Um, I think there's a museum of some sort in Canberra, and I think they've got all the bits and pieces there. So I'll have to have a word with them about director's cuts and say, come on, do it, do it, do it. Yeah, give us a director's cut. Let us see the gecko death scene. Yeah, big time. Yeah, that's really the only big change I think I would make is put that back in. Otherwise, I think it's a great film. And it's my favorite season of ours. It was a beauty. I loved it. We did have two seasons to figure out how to do it. Well, yeah. (laughs) By all metrics, this should be the best season that we do because we've had so much practice at it. I think it's going to be one of my favorite seasons just because there is so much packed into Fury Road. I'm really looking forward to getting into it bit by bit. Yeah, I know. Shot by shot and just seeing all the detail that's packed in there because it's so much stuff. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be different. It's going to be different, but it's going to be fun. Exactly. I'm starting low down the scale so you can just work up from here because, you know, I'm just going to make it terrible at the beginning. So (laughs) everything from here is up. So getting back into the minute proper, we've got this black screen that dominates our view once the Village Roadshow picture logo goes away and we get our first taste of Max in this movie where he just comes in talking about who he is and what his world is like. And what strikes me most about this first introduction is the fact that it's the second time that we've started a Mad Max movie with voiceover, but it's the first time that the voiceover has been directly from Max and in a very present tense style. I think that shows growth on Max's part because the previous three movies, he doesn't talk a lot about who he is or what he's feeling or where he is mentally. These are just things that aren't talked about. And now he is volunteering this information. And however many years down the road, which is debatable, he has changed and seemingly for the better. Mm -hmm. I think if he is capable of talking about himself in the present tense, having a perspective on what his world is like is probably healthier for him Mm -hmm. than where we left him at the end of Mad Max 79. I also think it's important that this is voiceover as in like the voice that he's saying, I guess in his head is where I'm going at. Because as we're going to see over the course of the movie, he's not a very talkative guy. So the voiceover that we're hearing now is not necessarily Max talking to someone. It's as if he's thinking it more so than saying it. What do you think, Mark? I think you're right. (laughs) Um, I think it's definitely all in his head. I think obviously from the filmmaking perspective, it's also to uh, get a whole new generation of film film viewers who've never seen the original Mad Maxes to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. 
also to give Tom Hardy a great opportunity to do his Australian accent. Um, <laughs> my name is Max, which was interesting. But uh, interestingly, when we originally were thinking about opening the film, there was no voiceover. It was going to be absolute silence. And that opening shot was going to be a hell of a lot longer. But the idea was that Max was talking to himself. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe he is talking to himself. You just can't see his lips moving. <laughs> Over here, I have a secondary set of notes from our listener contributions. And one of them, specifically from previous guest Shem Herman, he mentioned that you had some test screenings where there was more voiceover than what we eventually got. Do you know if there was a swing back and forth between too much, too little? Always is. You know, you, you test things out in the studios. It's just going, we don't know whether this is going to this is going to work for an audience and you never know until you put it in front of an audience. So yeah, there was definitely test screenings with more at one point, which we won't go into too much. But at one point there was a test screenings of two different versions, one by the studio and one by George. Mm-hmm. That was actually quite late in the piece. The George version one. I was going to ask. <laughs> I certainly yeah. hope so. Yeah. I mean, you know, the studio always wants to make sure that everybody has yeah, you know, they want to make sure the audience has the maximum amount of information, which sometimes can veer into the I don't trust the audience to actually be able to figure this out for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, we've got a reasonably nice balance. I mean, no one expected it was going to be 30 years between films, so you needed something. So instead of going with Max spelling it out for everybody in no uncertain terms, we get a little bit of Max and then we get these disembodied voices just kind of coming out of the ether with this person demanding why are you hurting these people and then this other more aggressive sounding voice saying it's the oil stupid and i'm like i'm gonna say this right now this is a celebration of fury road this is not an opportunity for someone like me to go through pick apart nitpick and complain about different aspects of the movie but that being said the use of the word stupid just felt a little weird it felt weird to me too yeah (laughs) i'm picturing this guy wearing leather probably some big menacing looking weapon kicking some guy to the curb and he's on the ground cowering covered in his own blood and he's like why are you doing this and then this guy comes in i want to take your gas dummy that doesn't jive (laughs) with what i had envisioned in my head well you know this must be a holdover from the uh the period at which they were trying to make a pg rated fury road (laughs) oh my word after going from road warrior to thunderdome and the drastic change between r and pg-13 i don't even want to entertain the idea of a pg fury road (laughs) we must talk about it because up till the very end it was going to be pg Seriously? I mean, I guess when you're talking about ratings, violence, nudity, language are the big three that dictate a rating. If you have more than one F-bomb, it's automatically a R rating. I think nowadays, if you show someone smoking, it gets an R rating. Really? Uh, Wait, what? I know. It's I. That's what like I've heard. I can't confirm that. Yeah, smoking is automatically. You know, you know, smoking is bad. Um, wow. Okay. But I'm pretty sure if you don't have blood spray or blood splatter, like if you're not doing what RoboCop did, <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> yep. Yep. And then, but, obviously, this movie doesn't have a ton of nudity. I mean, there are some standout scenes that show mostly naked women from the waist up, and there mm-hmm. is that one deleted scene with a very explicitly shown nipple. But We'll get to the deleted scenes when we get to them. Of course. But I think you could, in theory, if you take out the blood in this movie, you could probably very easily do a PG version, now that I think of it. 
Doesn't the ratings board also take into consideration the maturity level of the themes? Because the maturity level of a major theme in this movie is pretty mature. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah, Yeah, the idea of rape and having a harem and having breeders, that's not something for children or even teenagers. That's an adult theme. Mm. And it's central to the story. It is. And interestingly enough, I don't know how much that played with the discussions, but from what I heard while I'm sitting there outside George's office doing the Mad Max comics, which we'll get to later, yeah, most of the discussion was about the scary masks. Characters wore, and I'm not joking. Okay. I actually said, if you want this film to be PG-13, you need to limit the amount of scary masks for the characters. If you can cut them out, you can have your PG rating. To which the response was, uh, "That's about 50% of the film." Movie executives complain about the weirdest things. They really do. <laughs> oh, this is the, this is the ratings board. So yeah, weird. Anyway, there you go. All right, we're off. We're, we've gone off on a magnificent tangent, haven't we? <laughs> That's right. We started talking about calling people stupid and dummies. Then we got into movie ratings. We transitioned from this idea of fighting over oil to just straight up oil wars, where an older sounding voice talks about how they are killing for guzzling. Guzzling, of course, being a callback to the shooting script for Road Warrior, where we first saw that word written out in text. Now... I'm counting on our listeners to correct me if I'm wrong, but in Road Warrior, they never actually say out loud in the movie the word guzzoline, right? Oh, yeah. In Road Warrior, they never call it okay. guzzoline. They strictly... So this is the first time we've heard this word out loud. Right. Okay. Which is why a lot of people are like, what's up with this newfangled verbiage that they're using in this movie? They're making it sound this way and that way. And it's like, no. That's not new. Not new. Travis Sentil's favorite word from memory from their podcast. <laughs> paroxysms of horror every time it was mentioned. Now, I will admit, I have not yet listened to the You Are Awaited podcast, which longtime listeners will recognize as Yuri and Travis's Fury Road podcast. And I did that specifically because I don't want to repeat things that they said. I want all of my observations to be my own. And if they're not my own, I want to do my due diligence to attribute them properly. I feel like if I listen to their stuff, I might end up cribbing little factoids and opinions and observations from them too much. So I think once we're done putting out the episodes, then I'll listen to it just to keep myself sequestered away. And not run that you, can, you can listen to all the screaming every time someone mentions guzzling. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of it. I can count on that for sure. We transition from the oil wars to a different problem altogether. The world has run out of oil and now the world is running out of water. And a female voiceover informs us that there are now water wars, which is not the same as water world because that is a problem where there's too much water. Not enough drinkable water. Right. That's Mad Max three and a half. (laughs) (laughs) If Fury Road was not a thing and we had just gone through three seasons of the Mad Max movies, I would be very tempted to do a season in 3.5 on Waterworld. But thankfully, we have Fury Road, so we can just go straight from one to the other and we don't have to wait 30 years in between. (laughs) I'm happy. So as we're listening to all of this voiceover for information, we get to see our principal cast players are Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron. As for... Tom Hardy. In all of my research, I found, you know, he was brought in play Max after Mel Gibson's public meltdown and all of his personal problems and whatnot. He was also brought in because George's first pick was Heath Ledger. And of course, he tragically committed suicide in 2008. And so that put that plan out the window. 
But I like that here underneath Tom Hardy's name, we see that this is Max Rokitansky. This is not a grown-up version of the feral child or any sort of weirdness like that. No, this is our man Max through and through. I think a lot of people want to make this story and its connection to the other three more complicated than it is. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's just another story of Max. This is another one of his adventures. And it's as simple as that. This is still Max. It's the same Max. Mark, when you were working on this movie, you were pretty much planning on doing an old man Max story. Is that right? That's right. It was always intended to be, in a lot of ways, it was intended to be Max's last story, really. Mm-hmm. His rehabilitation back into society, as it were. It was going to be Mel. And we, we even had Mel come in and go through everything we'd done and have a three-day meeting with us about it, which was interesting and fun and terrifying at the same time. And yeah, then it didn't happen, which is a bit of a bit of a shame in some ways, but good in others because mm. it gave us a possibility for other things. <laughs> but Mel did actually say at some point when he was looking at these storyboards at George, we had this huge room filled with storyboards, um, four thousand and eighteen of them, plus the other sixteen thousand that got thrown out. When uh, he came to visit, and we went, and went took, George took him through all the storyboards in this enormous room filled with storyboards. Uh, 4,018 of them. Um, Mel sat there and looked at the whole thing over the course of a day and a half as George took him through shot by shot and he got progressively sleepier and sleepier as he went. <laughs> Melkinson's quite hyperactive, but uh, by the end of it, he was sitting there just going, doing a great Homer Simpson impersonation. But he said at the end of it, well, George, this all sounds great, but I'm getting close to 50 now. If you're going to do this, we're going to do this now because I'm not going to do it in about two years' time. So that's another thing that went uh, pear-shaped. Mel's age. But anyway, there you go. As I think about the different things that are going to happen in this movie that Tom Hardy is called on to do, just in the opening six minutes of this movie, all of the climbing and the diving and the fighting and the jumping – Sure, you've got people in Hollywood like Tom Cruise who are in their mid-50s that are still doing things like Mission Impossible Fallout, but I don't look at Mel Gibson and see him as a Tom Cruise type. For one thing, he's a few inches taller, I believe. Yes. (laughs) Just a few. I've stood next to both of them. I know Tom Cruise's nose goes into my um, breastbone because it was there one day. It's a long story. But yeah, Mel's a little bit taller, but I know I can't fit into one of his jackets. I'm six foot two. <laughs> Speaking of Tom Cruise, you, of course, did all of the storyboarding for Mission Impossible 2. Is that right? Sorry. Yes, I did. <laughs> I've done a lot of number twos. <laughs> We got to be guests on the Minute Impossible podcast, and we got to talk about the scene where Tom and Tandy Newton crash together, spin towards the cliff, and then we wake up the next morning after they've spent a night together, and then Tom just leaves to go hang out with Anthony Hopkins for a little while. We tend to get a lot of the sexy minutes because we're a married couple. Yeah, it's real fun. I've got to admit, I can't remember much about that film. I've only ever watched it once. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. But but, just as a slight tangent, the storyboarding for that film was done primarily as a way of John Woo trying to fool Tom Cruise into thinking he was doing something other than what he was going to do. Oh, my word. (laughs) They weren't really talking at the time. John Woo going, oh, draw this. And then we'll go and do something else on the day. Tom will never know. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, it's terrifying. The thing that the story, stories about that film. <laughs> I can only imagine John Woo standing over your shoulder being like, okay, draw some doves in here. Okay. Draw some more doves in here. And the whole time you're thinking, gosh, I hope I don't have to draw too many more birds. And then George is like, we're going to do a penguin movie. And you're like, oh, more birds. More birds. Several hundred thousand penguins in one shot. Thanks, George. Great. <laughs> yeah. Our eye, and we don't cut. We do a panning, long, tracking panning shot through several hundred thousand penguins. Thanks, George. Great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm waiting for global warming to happen so all the penguins drown and then I don't have to worry about it anymore. Oh. Um, <laughs> it would be Happy Feet 3 Beyond Penguin Dome. <laughs> You know, I actually did. I did, did actually ask George whether on one of the cars we could put a stuffed mumble head <laughs> as a hood ornament right at the beginning. That would have been fun, but he didn't go for it. That's a shame. Getting back to this title card real quick, we have Charlize Theron showing up as Imperator Furiosa. At this point, we have no idea what a Imperator is or what a Furiosa is like. But the most important detail that I can surmise is that we need to know who this person is because they are as important as Max, if not a little bit more important because they are a little bit higher up on the title card ever so slightly. I'm going with that. Definitely. Kind of, you know, you know kind of without her, the film doesn't happen. So, you know, there you go. I can't remember back when we did our last episode of Road Warrior, we were talking to Yuri and Travis about side characters. And I think we threw Furiosa up against Papagallo as to who was the better character because they filled a very similar role as the person that Max encounters and reluctantly becomes allied to. Mm -hmm. And I think Furiosa walked away with that one just because she was going up against, you know, Papagallo. (laughs) I think Furiosa can walk away with whatever she damn well pleases. And try and stop her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not going to work well. Back inside Max's internal monologue, he shares that, Once I was a cop, a road warrior searching for a righteous cause, and with that 13-word description of the previous three movies, it almost makes me wonder if we wasted a fair bit of time going over the uh, 295 episodes that we did. Well, each one of those lines does represent one of the three movies, Mm -hmm. so a little bit. (laughs) I do feel like there's a few details that he's omitting. (laughs) Just a few. Next up, we get a peek of some black and white file footage of atomic wind blasting a row of trees. And this is the, I guess, third strike the world is out when it comes to bad things. They ran out of gasoline, they ran out of water, and then the bombs fell. And it's nice to see black and white footage again. It's very Road Warrior. It does feel like an element of going home for the people who have seen the previous three movies and are familiar with them, this is definitely something similar to grab onto. And it's just a little bit of visual exposition that George wants just so everybody knows something bad happened. It's a nice allusion to all of the nuclear bombs that we can assume are going off. It's not quite as explicit. Over our hiatus, we watched A Boy and His Dog, and that movie began with a gratuitous amount of bombs going off, one right after the other with Technicolor films attached to each one, so each explosion was a different color, and they were really trying to hammer home the whole the world blew up idea. This, a bit more subtle, a bit more understated bit easier to swallow. George is going for that slightly, perhaps recontextualizing the apocalypse, giving it more facets. So instead of there being just a nuclear war, it's environmental as well. So Mm. it's each building on top of each. And so I think they specifically say there's a nuclear skirmish 
as opposed to a nuclear war. So limited nuclear war in certain areas. We have no idea where, but bad things happened elsewhere. And then everyone went slightly bonkers. The important thing is that we had our poxy clips full of pain and out of it were birthed terrible things and crackling dust. I don't remember the exact words because it's been several that months. That was pretty good, though. <laughs> I'm done with that. That's awesome. The important thing is the earth is sour. Your little victory garden, not going to grow very well. Unless you've got some sort of special conditions that you can grow in. But, I want to know what a victory garden is now. Oh, victory, garden? victory gardens. Those were back in, I want to say, World War II with all of the rationing that was happening, primarily in England, also over here in America, people were encouraged in order for more resources to go to the front, you go out into your yard and you grow a victory garden so that you don't have to go out and take food away from soldiers. You can grow it yourself, which for people with land, super easy to do. And it was this encouragement thing. Go out and do your part by being a little self-sufficient. But if you have nuclear skirmishes happening, the earth is going to be sour. Your bones are going to be poisoned. And as a determined woman in voiceover says that they have become half-life and that idea of half-life is going to show up to be very important and mean something very specifically. But we'll wait until we're at the Citadel talking to the organic mechanic before we dip into that pool. That's going to be fun. Yeah. Looking forward to that. So as we're hearing about Poison Bones and Half-Lives, we get to see that this is a George Miller film, which I would have it no other way. No, I don't think anybody else could have made this specific movie. And this movie is fantastic just the way it is. Big time. Well, I say that now before we've analyzed it minute by minute. (laughs) I'm sure by the end, I'll have all sorts of ways it could be improved. I'm looking forward. I'll take notes and I'll I'll pass them on to George. Excellent. Thank you very much. (laughs) He'll look at you with a slightly confused koala expression. (laughs) If you ever manage to snap a photo of his confused koala expression. I would love to hang that on my wall. (laughs) I'll do my very best. (laughs) It's the confused koala walk that goes with it, which is even more awesome. So it has to be a video. (laughs) In the past, we've talked about this idea of George putting together a sort of Mad Max movie Bible that he could then pass along to another filmmaker. And the more I dwell on it, as cool of an idea as it is, the idea that someone could take the Mad Max series and run with it, I just don't think it would be the same. And the thing that makes me think that is what we've seen with Disney and the Star Wars series. It's no longer the original director's vision as crackpot and crazy as that George may have been and turned out to be. We've got a good formula here. We don't need to mess with it when it comes to George Miller. Well, that being said, just because the the new trilogy isn't George Lucas and isn't of the same flavor, neither was the prequels compared to the original trilogy. That wasn't the same flavor either. That's true. I know that there are a lot of people out there that the new trilogy isn't for them. They don't like the direction that it has gone in. I'm not one of those people. I like them. And just because the direction is different than what George Lucas would have done doesn't mean that this direction is bad. Now, Mark, you've rubbed elbows with George, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I, it seems like an odd thing to do, but I guess if you're in a narrow hallway and your elbows are out. But anyway, what is your take on that? It's a funny one. The Star Wars films, I worked on Attack of the Clowns. I mean, sorry, Attack of the Clones. Um, <laughs> And working with Lucas was very different to working with George Miller because, and I did them both at the same time, just so you know, Mad Max during the day, Star Wars at night for about four months, which was an interesting time. 
and Lucas had all this stuff in his head and he had backstories for everything. Clearly, he's a storyteller, but he's not a great director. He's not a great communicator. So all this stuff was going on, but it feels like what he really, really had going was he was obviously into the Joseph Campbell stuff, as is our George, but he really, really worked with this mythic structure. And it feels like in the new Disney films, that mythic structure is gone, if you know what I mean. There's this a mythic quality, this slightly magical element, mm. which has now been rationalized to the point where it's actually not really magical anymore, if you know what I mean. And it feels like that's kind of gone by the wayside. And instead, what we're doing now is we're either trying to get a new audience and an old audience, as much of the old film as possible, or we're trying deliberately to get as far away from it as possible. Mm -hmm. But there's no singular vision that's driving the whole thing anymore. It's an interesting thing. So getting back to your original point, which is having someone else come along and do Mad Max, I think that would be really a really tough call. George would have to be involved some way because he brings that slightly weird mythic George Miller, what the hell are you talking about, George? No one gets what you're talking about. You're an idiot. Ah, oh, we've seen the film and it works. As we fade away from George's name, we get into this last title card. It's a blank black screen, as we've seen several times over the course of this minute. And Max says, as the world fell, each of us in our own way was broken which we got to see very clearly in the first three movies. We know Max's backstory at this point. And for those newcomers, for those soft reboot reimagining, however you want to pronounce it, you know, that's just letting the people know this is what you need to know. If you're just tuning in for the first time, this is me. This is my world. I'm not exactly right. And we get to hear more about that on Wednesday's Minute. So here at the tail end of our episode, Mark, is there anywhere that you would like people to check out to find more of your work? Because you are doing a lot. I'm doing things, many things. One thing I do not have is a website <laughs> or anything like that. So yes, I, I do bits, but the problem is I work in film mainly, so no one can see what I do until those films come out. And then half the time I can't do it anyway. But uh, yes, there's bits and pieces around. At the present moment, I'm awaiting awaiting the call to do another George Miller film. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that some other time. And uh, yeah, I find myself saying rude things to people on social media occasionally. <laughs> uh, and of course, um, now and then I do comic work, which we'll get into later as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm currently doing a bit of stuff on uh, Judge Dredd for British Comic Magazine's 2000 AD, which is fun and doesn't pay very well, but it's awesome. It's always fun to go into another sort of sci-fi dystopic thing. So if you're a fan of Judge Dredd, whether the comics or I hear the Carl Urban movie, is really good. Is it Carl or Keith? I can I can never keep them straight. Well, one's married to Nicole Kidman and one's not. Yeah. Find the Judge Dredd movie that doesn't have still Esther Stallone because I hear that's the better of the two. Anyway, as yes. for us, coming up on Wednesday, we get to see our first clear look at Max, unobscured in shadow or anything, since we left him on Jedediah's runway. And we also get to see how Max's morning is, well, let's just say not as quiet and peaceful as he would like. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Bautista of DanielBautista.com. 
Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute One of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.